0: This morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we simply call "Holy in All Manner of Conversation." It's a three-week series that we started last week. Uh, we'll pick up this morning and finish uh, next weekend, and it's rooted in this idea from First Peter. It's a verse uh, that First Peter writes in his letters, this is First Peter one fifteen, where Peter is instructing the disciples, the early church, uh, how it is we are to live our lives. Uh, if we are to be holy uh, as Jesus is holy. And so if we are to live a life where we draw closer to Jesus and look more like Jesus, uh, this is how we are to behave, how we are to, to act in the world. And one of the instructions that Peter gives uh, for Jesus' disciples uh, is this one from 1 Peter one fifteen, And this is from the King James Version. Uh, when he writes this, he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy In all manner of conversation. Peter is saying, just as God is holy, just as Jesus is holy, and God and Jesus are the ones that are calling us uh, into discipleship, uh, we too are to seek holiness, to be holy in all manner of conversation. Other uh, translations will say, be ye holy or or, be holy. It doesn't say be ye, that's only King James. (laughs) It says, be holy in all manner of conduct. And really what I love about this version is that when it it stresses conversation or stresses conduct, it really is a a conduct with one another, a conduct in relationship with one another. And conversation or dialogue requires holiness to exist uh, between people. Uh, One thing you hear me say often on Sunday mornings is that one of the most important things uh, that we do uh, as disciples is that we do this thing together. Uh, God never designed us to do it alone. And so we draw together for worship. We uh, come together in small group community. We uh, join together in membership because uh, really this journey of discipleship is one that we were designed to journey with people. But when we journey with people, one of the things that we recognize is we have to interact with those people. We have to dialogue with those people. We're in conversation with those people. And sometimes when we're in conversation in dialogue in practice, we actually enter into conflict with those same people. And when we have conversations that enter into conflict, we have to hopefully model a way of those conversations, of that relational conduct, whereby when people see us not just as individuals, but when people see us together, they actually might be drawn to holiness or drawn uh, to God. And so, for these three weeks, really, what we're trying to do is get a very practical about how we uh, live out of uh, that practice. And we're doing two things. One, we're drawing deeply on Scripture. And we're also drawing on a book um, that was written by Carrie Patterson. Uh, This is the book. I know many of you have read it. Some of you have used it uh, other places. Uh, But Crucial Conversations uh, is a practical book that is designed uh, to help us have, um, to to be in relationship, but also to disagree on spaces whereby those conversations are healthy and whole, and in our case, holy, as we move and reflect uh, what, what that dialogue might look like. And what they, they define as crucial conversations happen in three spaces, and this will be reviewed for many of you who were here last week. They say crucial conversations exist when these three things are, happen. One, the stakes are high. Uh, secondarily, emotions are strong. And thirdly, opinions vary. And, and while this why this is important is because uh, not all conversations are crucial conversations. So we need to pay to pay attention to conversations differently. One of the examples that I've used, was some some of you have heard this before, but when my wife and I were preparing to get married, we were engaged, and we were having a conversation about the flowers we were going to have at our wedding. Um, The way this conversation went is she said, "Uh, which flowers should we have? And I said, I don't have an opinion. I don't care. And she said, that's not the right answer. You should have an opinion. You should care. She was training me early. And and she said, which ones you like? And I said, Well, my opinion, the only opinion that mattered in that case was hers, right? My opinion didn't actually matter. We might have differed, but the stakes weren't that high. They were just flowers at our wedding. The emotions weren't that strong. I just wanted to make sure she was happy. I wanted her emotions to be good, right? But that was just a conversation. That was just me being trained to be a husband. That's all that was. (laughs) There is nothing crucial about that other than my formation to become more holy. That's all that was. Crucial conversations are different. Crucial conversations exist when stakes are high, when emotions are strong, when opinions vary. It's a very different thing. And so what we want to talk about and spend time with uh, over these next three weeks are these kinds of conversations. And again, part of my hope is we get very practical. Uh, scripture is very pragmatic about this. This is one of the places that Scripture speaks too often. Uh, we see Jesus in these conversations. Uh, we also see explicit teaching about how to be in relationship and in conversation. Uh, one of those places is from the book of James. Uh, some of you will recognize this passage. It's one of the most uh, well, most quoted passages from James's letter. Uh, when James talks about how we live in relationship, he says this: "You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness." What James is teaching is one method by which we have these conversations. One of the the, the Christian practices of dialogue is that we are trained, we are taught to be a people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And I love the way he puts this. For your anger, your strong emotion that is evidenced by anger, does not produce God's righteousness or God's holiness. And so one of the things that we have to guard against is how our emotions, when they do rise, when they do get strong, that our emotional response, in this case James points out anger, is actually moving us to a place where we more fully and more wholly reflect God's righteousness, uh, God's holiness. And so my hope for these three weeks is that we would give each other some tools, we would have uh, some conversation, as Angelo says, conversation about conversation, uh, that gives us some tools by which uh, when we speak, when we listen, when we dialogue, uh, we would uh, do a better job of this, that we might reflect God's holiness. A couple of questions that I shared last week that I would just keep in front of you. Uh, the first two are this. Uh, and this is just two questions. If you do nothing else with this series, I'll write these down. And before you speak, before you communicate, before you go on Twitter, before you do anything else, ask yourself these two questions. If you do this, I promise you, hopefully you will be more holy in conversation if you take these seriously. Uh, the first is do all of the ways you communicate I'll Bring glory to God. Are the ways you're speaking, writing, sharing, are they bringing glory to God? And secondarily, I'll do all the ways you communicate demonstrate a love for each other? Again, if you'll do these two things, if we'll practice this alone, I think it will move us closer to holy conversation. This morning, we're going to take one more step, and I'm going to ask three more questions. The first is, how do you respond when faced with these crucial conversations? One thing we'll learn this morning is that each of us has natural tendencies when we are faced with, uh, with crucial conversations. When stakes are high, when emotions are strong, and when opinions vary, we have a natural way we do that. The authors talk about that as silence or violence. Some of you have heard that as fight or flight. So, so you'll have a natural response. And so knowing that response, knowing what that looks like for you, and how you respond to these things will be helpful as you think about how you might model holiness in your conversation. And the last one is, is there a third way? Is there a way by which we as disciples might be in conversation that does not silence or violence, fight or flight, or might uh, bring anger into those spaces that draw people from, uh, from Jesus? And So that's where we'll spend our time uh, this morning. Uh, as we go, as we prepare, I'm going to enter us into a conversation uh, that is by definition crucial. Uh, This is in Matthew uh, chapter 4, and so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, you can open up with me to Matthew 4. We're going to be beginning in verse 1. We'll read 1 through 11. If you have your app, you can pull up on your apps, or we'll have the words on the uh, screens behind me as well. But this is one of those spaces. Last week, we saw Jesus talking to a woman who was caught in sin, and then had conversations with her as well as the Pharisees, the teachers, uh, the community around them. Uh, This week is more of a supernatural conversation. So this will be familiar to many of us, but this is Jesus not having conversations with other people, uh, but having conversations with the devil. So this will be very crucial and very fun. Let's watch. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. I'm going to pause right there for a minute. Uh, one thing to notice is that when Jesus was in temptation, having conversation with the devil, uh, he had not eaten in 40 days. He was very hungry. In our culture, we call that hangry, right? Sometimes hunger leads to a high tense, high stress situation. Again, it can be a factor in this. If I were to add a fourth you know, part of this, I would add hunger to it. Just a side note, keep it there. Verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, a saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, We will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, this is a crucial conversation. The stakes are high, the devil is tempting Jesus to turn away from Jesus' own identity as the Son of God, as the one that's going to bring salvation to the world, as the one whose purposes will lead us closer to God, connect us to God, set us free from sin and death. The stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. Emotions are strong. This is Jesus hungry in tension with the evil one, with Satan. I imagine that they don't get along very well, right? Uh, emotions are strong they're, they're passionate there there's something happening there and opinions vary again good and evil there is a disagreement about even how to read God's word between Jesus and the devil opinions vary in this space this is a crucial conversation it is a high tense conversation a high stress conversation now I will tell you for most of us uh, for all of well, I was I'll say for most of us most of the time our dialogue partners uh, are not the devil that's the good news <laughs> Most of the time, our dialogue partners are each other. And hopefully, we don't see each other the same way Jesus saw the devil. But we are entering into similar places where, when these things happen, sometimes what we feel like is we are in conversation with someone who is counter or enemy to our own passion. What sociologists say and what, uh, is that this is what happens when we enter into those spaces. Here's a, a picture of our brains. Our brains, neurologically and physiologically, when we're in places where we don't feel safe, where we feel stressed or high tension or our emotions are strong, we feel like there's a conflict happening, what they say happens to us physiologically is the frontal lobe of our brain where reason and rationality exist disengages. And what engages instead is our fight or flight response. Now physiologically, this is actually a safety mechanism for us. It's the same response that we have when we encounter a bear or a snake or a spider or whatever is going to create fear in you, where we decide in that moment where our adrenaline begins pumping and we decide whether we're going to engage to fight or to flee. Now I'll also tell you that if you have teenagers or preteens and you feel like this happens more than it should, it's because their frontal lobe is not fully developed yet. So they move very much, very quickly into fight or flight. And so if you've had a preteen moment this week or a teenage moment this week where you had strong emotion where you felt like they got very angry very quickly or just shut down for a moment, there's a great physiological response to that. There's a reason for that. Now, Pastor Gray used to say that we all were just like middle schoolers and this is the reason we all act like middle schoolers, right? But this is, this is the response, and so there's a natural reason why we begin to act this way in these conversations, where we either want to get aggressive in them or we withdraw from them. And for each of us, we have a natural tendency when we engage conflict in crucial conversations. And it's usually one or the other. Uh, for some of us, our natural response is a flight response or a silence response. So I want you to imagine yourself for a minute in the last time that you had a crucial conversation. It could be with a spouse, it could be with a coworker. it could be with a family member, a neighbor, whomever. Just put yourself in that space. What the authors of Crucial Conversations says is when we are tend to silence, these are the three things we would tend to do. A silence response or a flight response manifests itself as masking, avoiding, or withdrawing. Masking consists of understanding or selectively showing our true opinion. What this looks like is it means sarcasm, sugarcoating, or couching. When you use humor to deflect from a situation, this is often what masking looks like. The second is avoiding. Avoiding involves steering completely away from sensitive subjects. We talk without addressing the real issues. Some of, you will say, some of you will say, I just don't like conflict. And so you'll be in a dialogue where there is conflict, and you'll try to find anything else to talk about than what's happening in the moment. There could be a game on. Hey, have you seen the score of the Duke game? Right? Just whatever it may be. Like You just distract. It's a squirrel mechanism. We want to avoid whatever it looks like. The third is withdrawing, which means pulling out of a conversation altogether. We either exit the conversation or exit the room. For some of you, this is your natural tendency when you have a crucial conversation. You either mask, use humor, use sarcasm to, 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 to deflect from it, you avoid, you distract from it, or you withdraw, you just leave. And I bet for many of you, you know what that feels like. The other response that either you will practice or you see in others is a violence or a flight, or a fight response. And the authors say this is what that looks like. It's either controlling, labeling, or attacking. Controlling consists of coercing others to your way of thinking. It's done through either forcing your own views on others or dominating a conversation. Methods include cutting others off, overstating facts, speaking in absolutes, changing subjects, or using directive questions to control the conversation. Controlling looks like either you or the person you're dialing with talking so much that you cannot get a word in. Or making things seem so black and white that you have no response. Uh, or in, you know, in the legal profession, you call this leading questions, where they ask questions like, Hey, so you know that the Bible is super clear on this thing, and so you agree with that, right? <laughs> That's a controlling mechanism. It's a violent mechanism where you're controlling and manipulating outcomes based on how you speak. Labeling. Labeling is putting a label on people or ideas so we can dismiss them under a general stereotype or category. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We look at somebody and we, we, we put, a, put them in a box, a label, whereby by that label, by that box, we presume to know everything about them. And so we can dismiss them because of that label or box. We do this in politics. We label somebody Democrat or Republican or Independent we label them progressive or conservative or whatever it may be. And because of that label, we can dismiss them outright because they are part of that particular category. We do this with language. We do this with country of origin. We do this with race. We do this with socioeconomic status. We put labels around people and we protect our own opinion and protect our own thought process by dismissing someone because of whatever box we feel like we can put them in. The last is attacking. Attacking is when you've moved from winning an argument to making the other person suffer. Tactics could include belittling or threatening. Another word for this would be bullying. When we bully other people, when we attack other people, and we seek to cause harm to the person rather than to move the conversation forward, uh, that would be called attacking. I will tell you uh, that some of us, when we hear this, uh, we, we, we lean one way or the other, and we want to say, well, one has to be more faithful than the other. You know, silence clearly feels more compassionate, or, or, or silence at least is a more faithful response. The reality is the authors, and we also believe that neither one of them helps move us forward as conversation partners. Neither one of those responses, silence or violence, moves us towards holiness or wholeness or reconciliation. And so whatever your response might be, whatever you're engaging with, uh, those sh- should not be options for us. And so what does a third way look like? A third way looks like this. Uh, first, they named the problem, and they named the problem this way. They said, the problem is that with too little safety, uh, nothing is discussable. So we're in these dialogues, and they're high stress, high tension. There's something at stake there. We don't feel safe, and so we, we respond in one of those two ways. That's the physiological response. And so the authors push us to a place uh, where we are uh, to create safety in that space. And they, they ask us to do it two ways. Uh, the first is with mutual respect. Mutual respect says that you know that I care about you. Now this is something that as believers, as Christ's followers, we should be really good at. We should be really good at making sure that the people that we're in relationship with, the people we're in conversation with, know that we love them. Now, I want to back up a minute to Matthew chapter 4. It was really hard for me to lay this against Jesus' relationship with the devil. <laughs> like I want it to be very clear that he has no mutual respect or love for the devil. And then I remembered Matthew 5, and this is what Matthew 5 writes. When Jesus is talking about his relationship with evil, this is what he says. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says that even for our enemies, even for him, his eternal enemy, Satan, the tempter, the the evil one, our response is to be a response of love of compassion, of caring for the other, because in that love and compassion and caring, we see the other person as a child of God. As a child of God, we respond differently. And again, we should be best at this. If we got nothing else right, we should get this right all the time. Regardless of who we're in dialogue with, regardless of who we're in conflict with, regardless of who's across the table for us, part of our response is to recognize that that person is loved by God, Created by God and a child of God, just like we are children of God. And when they know this by our action and by our speech, we tend to create a safe space by which we can then have dialogue and conversation. The second thing that they name is when you do that, when you start there, is that you then move to mutual purpose. That is, that not only do I care about you as a person, I also care about what's important to you, I care about your goals. And one of the best things that we can do uh, when, we, when we do this, and we'll spend a lot of time on this next week when we talk about the stories we tell, is when we come to these conversations, more often than not, we actually presume what the other person wants in the conversation. Because we know them, because we've been around them, because we know about them or who they are or who their family is or, or what their background is or what their affiliation is, we, we already know what they want, and so we just sort of guess those things and move forward with that. And part of what we have to begin to do as people, if we want to, to move to healthiness and wholeness, we need to ask, what matters most to you? What matters most to you? What are you hoping to get out of this? How do we, how do we move forward in this? And when we ask those questions, when we unpack those stories, set aside our narratives, and move to a more holistic narrative, again, we can, we can dialogue in healthy ways. Again, we'll spend a lot more time on this uh, next week. One of the reasons we're having this conversation today and these next three weeks is because of the the crucial conversation that's happening in St. Louis uh, this morning and this weekend. As we've shared over the last last several weeks, our denomination is in the middle of a crucial conversation. Now, for a little bit of history, we've been having this conversation for 50 years. Uh, We started in 1968 when we were merged and became United Methodists. We were a merger of the Evangelical United Brethren Church with the Methodist Church. And then every four years, we met as a global church. It's called General Conference. And starting in 1972, we started having a conversation about human sexuality. And for the last almost 50 years, we've been having this conversation. Now, I will tell you, if you're having a conversation that's crucial for 50 years, you're not doing it right. That's a pro tip. If you're having the same conversation over and over and over again, and you're not moving forward in it, and you're not moving towards wholeness or reconciliation in it, It is not actually being done in a way that moves us towards wholeness and righteousness and toward godliness. That's not happening. We have failed generally at conversations like this. We all do it. We do it in our relationships, again, with spouses, with neighbors, with with coworkers. We also do it in the church. And part of why we've not done this well is because we as a denomination have practiced these same things. When it came to having this crucial conversation, we've practiced things like silence. You know, we've masked the issue. We've talked about anything but the issue. We've, we've said it's something else than what it actually is. And so we've covered it up with, with humor or dialogue or other things to, to not have to talk about it. We've avoided it. We've talked about other things beside this. We've, we've created distractions in that conversation to, to pull us away from the heart of issues. We've also withdrawn. People in our church have simply stepped outside the room, stepped outside of the places with people that they have been in relationship and mission with, and ministry alongside to literally transform the world have simply left because they didn't want to have this conversation. We've also done it with violence. We've controlled the conversation. Different groups have formed, different um, different groups have kind of come together and made a politics or strategy or design to coerce and to manipulate the conversation to, to land in the place that they want it to land. We've labeled We've taken a group of people, in this this case uh, people that have identified as members of the LGBTQ community, and we've put them in a box, and rather than being in a relationship with people, we've talked about them as if there's some debate uh, to win or lose. Again, one of the things that we have to be best at as the church, one of the things that we have to get better at and to do better than anybody is to see people as people And to see topics of conversation as topics of conversation. We cannot see people as topics of conversation. They are not an issue to debate. We do this so poorly. And part of my hope and part of my prayer for this week and part of my hope and part of my prayer for this church is we would continue to be a church that takes seriously where we're called to welcome all, to love all, and to serve all and to see people, all people, regardless of what labels we put around them, as children of God, created by God and imprinted on them the image of God that God gives each of us. When we can shift our imagination that way and we can see people with an imagination that God has created each of us uniquely and God has made us and God forms us and God loves us and we can be in conversation with, not conversation about, that will shift the way that we have these conversations. We've got to get better at that. The last thing is attacking. Too often, we as a church have used bully tactics, we have used attacking tactics to isolate, to divide, to break apart, not to draw together. And when we do that, when people watch us do that, they just see a reflection of the same culture that we live in, which is the reflection of a culture that that uses attacking to break apart, not dialogue to draw together. And because they watch us do the very same thing, no one sees God in that. Because that is not godly. As we close this morning, I want to close with two things. Uh, the first is this. One thing that's important to me, it's important to Pastor Angelo and to our leadership, is that I do not presume to know all the goals and hopes you have for our church. I hope you assume the first. When we talk about mutual respect, the fact that, that we care about you, that I care about you, that I hope that's known uh, through our actions and through our words, what it means to love uh, love each other very well is an assumption. We, we do care deeply for one another. That's one of the beauties of this church. What I don't always know is what you think, what you hope for, what your purposes are. And so this week, uh, you received an email if you're part of our newsletters that asked a simple question. And we take this very seriously. And the question is this, around this conversation, Uh, What response do you hope to see from our church that is most faithful to our mission of inviting and equipping all to follow Jesus and transforming the world? Um, We invite you to write to us, an email to us, a letter to us that just shares this. That will help us understand more fully what what it means to be part of this church for you and what you hope to see happen as part of our church family going forward. And again, I don't presume to know what all your values are. So this will help us with that uh, conversation. The second thing is this. I want to close with two, two questions. These are the last two, Marybeth. Beth. And that, these are questions that I want you to add to your, your toolbox. And when you're having a crucial conversation, when you're in dialogue with folks, ask yourself this question. Do you love the other person? And do they know this through your words and actions? I will tell you, as Christ's followers, our only response to the first one, the only answer we can faithfully give is yes. If Jesus can do this with the devil, we have to do this with all people. The second is, do you know what's important to them? Have you asked them? Have you created a safe space whereby they can respond? And in both of these places, again, hopefully my hope, my prayer as we can move forward in modeling what it means not to just be in dialogue, but to be in holy dialogue, a holy conversation with each other.